Hey, good morning, church family. I hope you're doing well on this Sunday morning. I love you guys, and I miss being here with you. And as fortunate as it is that we cannot gather together right now, it's a blessing to know that we're able to sing the same songs of praise and pray with the same spirit of adoration and confession and gospel celebration and read the same truths of God's wondrous works from his word. And now we're able to continue in our journey out of Egypt together. If you don't already have it open, please open in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 4. We're going to be covering the whole chapter today, so there's a lot that's going to go on. You're going to want to be with us as we go. Today's chapter ends in an interesting place. The people of Israel have been enslaved in Egypt for hundreds of years. They were forced to work gruesome labor, treated like scum, and there didn't seem to be any end in sight. They cried out to God, pleading for deliverance, and yet it seemed like all that returned in response was silence. Things seemed utterly hopeless. And yet, today's chapter ends with an enslaved nation lifting joyous worship to God, bowing their heads in adoration to a deserving and holy God. And all of that worship before he even rescued a single family out of Egypt. So we've seen how this chapter ends, as Hillary just read for us. What about the rest of it? Are we spoiling the narrative by jumping straight to the end first? Are you familiar with that term, spoiler? And no, I'm not talking about that piece of metal on your midlife crisis uncle's sports car. I'm talking about a spoiler in a story. For those of you who may not know, a spoiler is when you find out what happens in a story before it happens. In the age of internet, sometimes spoilers are hard to avoid. And maybe that's not such a bad thing. A study conducted at the University of California found that knowing a spoiler, knowing how a story ends, actually added to the story healer's hearer's experience rather than taking away from it. They got more out of the story after already knowing what was going to happen at the end. Now, why might that be? Because when you know what happens at the end of a chapter, you're constantly engaging with the details to try and piece together how that comes to happen. The enslaved people of Israel were weak, beaten, downtrodden, yet they bowed and worshipped God in their weakness. Why? Because they believed in him. They believed that he had heard their groans, that he had seen their agony. And not only had he heard them and seen them, but he was powerful. He was powerful enough to deliver them out of slavery, and they were convinced of his power. 
enough to deliver them out of Egypt. God had shown His power through the weakness of mankind. How did He do it? That's the question I'd like to be thinking about as we get into today's text. How does God show His power in our weakness? And as we move through the chapter, we'll see the answer to this question in three ways. First, God shows His power through our powerless positions. Second, God shows His power in our debilitating deficiencies. And lastly, God shows His power through our disqualifying disobedience. First, let's consider our man Moses and his position. When last we left off in in chapter 3, Moses was in the wilderness shepherding his flock when he noticed something unusual. In a nearby mountain, there was a bush that was on fire. But it wasn't just any old fire. Even as this bush was engulfed in flames, it was not being consumed. And from out of that unique fire, the voice of God said, Moses, Moses. And Moses, trembling, said, Here I am. And God instructed Moses to take off his sandals, for the presence that he was standing was holy ground. And even as Moses trembled with fear, God told him, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And God told Moses that he had heard the cries of his people, Israel. And he knew their suffering as they were enslaved in Egypt. And God said to Moses, I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to carry this message. Let my people go. And Moses said, God, who am I that Pharaoh would listen to me? Not only Pharaoh, but who am I that the people of Israel would even listen to me? And God effectively said to Moses, Moses, you are my messenger. Go and I will be with you. Tell them who I am. Tell them that I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Tell them I am who I am. In chapter 4, we pick up on this dialogue between Moses and God on Mount Horeb. And God says, God, they're not going to listen to me. They're not even going to give me the time of day. Why would they believe me? Why would they listen? I'm in no position to be heard or believed or followed. What's God's response? Do you say, whoops, you're right, Moses. I have the wrong guy. I have the wrong number. No, he says, watch this, Moses. See what I can do. And he proceeds to show Moses a series of signs. Now, before we get into these signs, take a look at verse 5 and see why God says he shows these miraculous signs. This is verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. The three signs that God walks Moses through during the show and tell section of this chapter demonstrate God's power, 
but they do so in a way that demonstrates his power specifically through Moses' powerless position. Consider. First, God says, Moses, what is that in your hand? Moses was holding a shepherd's staff, probably not unlike what you've seen in pictures and movies, this tall staff with a crook at the top. And Moses had spent the last 40 or so years of his life as a shepherd. That was the occupation that he found himself in when he fled from Egypt. He stumbled into the wilderness and he helped these women draw water from a well. And out of thankfulness, the shepherd head of their household welcomed him into their family. The shepherding life would have been quite the jump for Moses. He went from being under the care of the daughter of Pharaoh to being a shepherd in the wilderness. And shepherds were not regarded highly in the Egyptian culture from which Moses came. In Genesis 46, Joseph said that every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. An abomination. It's a little harsh, but it says a lot about where Moses is positioned at this stage in his life. He's a lowly shepherd, an abomination to the ruling class to which he once belonged. And so God says, hey, Moses, throw that staff on the ground. And Moses, still frightened and not wanting to disobey the disarming instruction of the fiery bush before him, threw his staff on the ground, and immediately it turned into a serpent. And I love this in the text that says, Moses ran away from the serpent. But God said, Moses, go ahead and grab that snake by the tail. And Moses, still terrified, reached out, grabbed the tail of the snake, and immediately it turned back into his staff. God turned the working tool of a lowly shepherd into a beast from which men run in fear. So that even as Moses is in this powerless position of a shepherd, God in his power would use him to put fear into the hearts of man. Second, God said, Moses, go ahead and put your hand inside of your cloak and pull it out again. And when Moses pulled out his hand, it was covered in disfigured, pale skin sores and bumps that were known as symptoms of leprosy. Leprosy, or Hansen's disease, is an infection of the nervous system that causes skin lesions to appear on the skin. Now, someone who was leprous back in that time would typically be cast out of society for fear of the disease spreading to others, and they would never be allowed back in to that place. Moses knew what it was to be outcast. Years earlier, Moses had been found out for murdering an Egyptian taskmaster, and he fled Egypt and Egyptian society for fear of being arrested and charged. And 40 years later, Moses had still not gone back into Egypt. Yet here, God, in his power, showed that he could restore Moses from his position of an outcast to the one who would lead his people out of Egypt. 
Thirdly, God said, Moses, if they see both of these signs and they still do not believe you, then take some water from the Nile River, pour it onto the ground, and it will become as blood. Now, you've heard of the miracle of Jesus turning water into wine. Now, behold, the more terrifying and less appetizing miracle of God turning water into blood. It's worthwhile to consider here that the Nile River played a critical role in Egyptian society. Their whole agrarian society was built around this river. It was central for trade and transportation. And just like that, God demonstrated that he was able to turn entire Egyptian life upside down. But what does this miracle say about God's messenger, Moses? Recall a few weeks ago when we were looking at chapter 2, to the birth of Moses. His mother placed him in a basket in the Nile River when she could not hide him any longer. And Pharaoh's daughter herself pulled him out of the water, and she was the one who named him Moses. Why? Well, it says in chapter 2, verse 10, that she named him Moses because she drew him out of the water. This helpless baby, left in a basket in the Nile River, lifted out of the water to become the man God would use to lead his people out of Egypt. Outcasted as a murderer, despised as a shepherd in the wilderness, in a powerless position through and through And yet, through these signs, all of Israel and all of Egypt beheld the power of God. Brothers and sisters, how wonderful is our God that he uses the helpless, the outcast, the despised to accomplish his plan. Take a moment and pause with me here to consider our position before God. You like me, were dead. You were 100% certifiably dead in your trespasses and sins against God. You were helpless, lying in a grave, outcasted from the kingdom of God for the sins that you committed against Him. Off on your own in the wilderness, deserving of wrath and condemnation, powerless to overcome the sin that held you in the grave. But God, with the great love with which he loved you, made you alive with Christ, even when you were dead. It is by the grace of God and the work of Christ that we have been raised to life. Raising the dead to eternal life is the ultimate power move of a powerful God. In the words of the late evangelist Leonard Ravenhill, Jesus didn't come to make bad men good. He came to make dead men live. No longer are we dead in our sin, but we are alive to righteousness. The sin that once held us in the grave has been put to death, and instead we can live lives of service to our neighbor that the power of God would be on display 
Do you know that in your resurrection from death to eternal life, the power of God is on display for the world to see? So, first we see that God shows his power through Moses' powerless position, and he shows his power by raising us in Christ. In the second half of this dialogue, notice Moses' debilitating deficiencies. God demonstrated these signs, all the ways he was going to powerfully show that Moses could be used for his glory. And Moses was amazed and said, okay, God, I'm in. Well, not quite. Moses in verse 10 says, but God, I'm not now, nor have I ever been eloquent enough to be your messenger. I'm slow of speech. Take a look at verse 11 to see how God responds. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, I will be your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. See, all of these amazing miracles highlighting Moses' redemption, showing God's power, and Moses is concerned that he doesn't have the literal chops to speak as God's messenger. And here God says, Moses, don't you know that I created the mouth? I created the vocal cords. I created the eyes. Sure, you have deficiency, but I do not. Every way that you are deficient, I created and mastered. I will speak for you. Moses' inability to communicate was a deficiency. Yet God said, I will supply you with every single word that you need. Just go. I've got you. And still, Moses persisted in his protests. Please, God, please, no, please send someone else. Don't make me do this. Now, note that it says in our text that God's anger with Moses was kindled. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, take note that Moses has a heart problem. And the Lord saw right to it. Take a look at what the Lord says in verse 14. Is there not Aaron... Your brother, the Levite. I know he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. Did you catch that? By highlighting Aaron's heart as glad, God contrasted the disposition of Moses' heart fearful, self dependent, anxious. Now, to be fair, going before a king and making demands of his workforce is an intimidating thing to do. But Moses had the God of the universe behind him pulling every string. Despite God demonstrating his power through Moses' deficiencies, still Moses was looking to his own strength for success. Rather than trusting God's strength, Moses was relying on his own. And even in God's anger, 
God was merciful enough to show his power. Take a look at verses 15 and 16 with me to see how God works the details of this. God says, You shall speak to Aaron and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. All right, so remember in the old plan, God was going to give Moses the power and the words to speak. And in this new plan, God is going to give Moses the power and the words to speak. Only the difference is now Aaron, the future high priest of Israel, is in the picture. In all of this, God is showing his power through Moses' deficiencies and weaknesses. Have you ever felt like your weaknesses are standing in the way of being the person that God has called you to be? Maybe you're like Moses and you feel the burden of a fearful and and self-dependent, anxious heart. Perhaps you're too fearful to share the gospel with your friend or with your neighbor or coworker. Perhaps it's your self-dependence stopping you from asking a fellow brother or sister in Christ for prayer or for counsel or to study scripture with them. Perhaps it's your anxiety that keeps you from loving and serving the people that God has placed in your life to love and serve. I hope you've been able to spend some time outside during this pandemic period. Chicago has amazing spring weather and you should definitely take advantage of it the five or six days of the year that we have it. If you've spent any significant amount of time outside in this last month, you've likely noticed that there are a lot more bicyclists outside. Now, I'm not talking about the typical spandex crew of dudes riding around Winnetka together. I'm talking about families. Families riding their bikes together, taking in the fresh air and just enjoying the ride. Do you remember what it was like to ride a bike for the first time, to learn how to ride a bike. Perhaps you started with training wheels to wheels on either side of the bike to provide stability, and all you had to do was focus on pedaling and steering. But then, eventually, the training wheels came off. And at that point, you just had to trust that the bike was going to stay up. Now, How a bike stays up while you're in motion requires some understanding of physics, and we're not fully going to get into that today. It's some combination of the position of the front axle and the inertia of forward movement and the the gyroscopic stability of the wheel. I don't know. We don't need to get into it today. If you're a physicist and you think you understand the full physics behind how bikes work, feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you. But The point here is that riding a bike requires trusting a force entirely outside of yourself to not fall on your face. As Christians, we trust God to provide his power in our deficiencies. And sometimes it's like riding a bike. We're not really sure how it works or how it's going to work. But we know that God is going to show his power in our weaknesses. 
The Holy Spirit says, go, I've got you. Brothers and sisters, fearfulness, anxiety, self-dependence, these are all a normal part of the Christian life. But it doesn't end there for us. In our weakness, God shows his power. Paul uh, unpacks this particularly well in 2 Corinthians 12. He's speaking of his weaknesses that he experiences, and he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul experienced the power of God in his weakness. So did Moses and Christian. So will you. Trust him. He's got you. All right, so we saw how God shows his power through powerless positions and through our debilitating deficiencies. Lastly, consider how God shows his power through our disqualifying disobedience. Moses came down from Mount Horeb with a plan from God to deliver the people out of Israel. So Moses has his marching orders, right? Give Aaron the words I give you to give to the people. Take your shepherd's staff and show these miracles. And lastly, tell Pharaoh to let my people go or else. These are serious marching orders. But God has given Moses everything that he needs. Moses comes down the mountain and God says, okay, it's time to go. Go to Egypt. So Moses, his wife Zipporah, his sons all saddle up and start on their road trip to Egypt. And along the way, Moses and his family stop at some sort of an inn or campgrounds to rest for the night. And something very interesting happens. Take a look at verse 24 with me. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. So, pause for a moment here and take that in. Moses, God's messenger, the one who is to lead the people out of Egypt, the filthy outcast that God made clean, the despised shepherd that God makes a hero, the helpless baby made rescuer, this same Moses God sought to put to death. It's likely that Moses was extremely sick even on his deathbed. Now, why would God bring this illness upon his own messenger? Think back to chapter 3. Remember what God said from out of that burning bush. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. Moses was standing in the presence of a holy God. God is holy. There is no one like him. In his absolute perfection, he is set apart from all of creation. Being in the presence of a holy God requires absolute perfection. But remember that that conversation on Mount Horeb wasn't as cheery as it could have been. 
God's anger with Moses was kindled when Moses' untrusting, fearful heart resisted God's commands. Moses came down from that mountain unscathed by the fiery bush, but so too did his disobedient heart. We see another illustration of Moses' disobedience in the events at the lodging place where Moses and his family are staying. Moses' wife, Zipporah, was a Midianite, and Midianites did not believe in practicing circumcision. So Gershom, their son, was not circumcised, and that was an issue. See, under the Abrahamic covenant, the people were instructed to show an outward sign outward sign of this covenant with God. They were to do so by circumcising every male descendant of Abraham when they were newborns. To not circumcise would be in direct disobedience of God's commands. Moses stood before God with a distrusting, disobedient heart. He stood on holy ground in disobedience. God, in his mercy, did not strike Moses dead where he stood on that mountain, but still his anger was kindled. All right, back to the lodge. Moses is laying on his deathbed, and his wife Zipporah springs to action. Now, we get to have a particularly strange mother account on this Mother's Day. We did not choose this text for this Sunday. One of the benefits of being a church that does expository preaching on a schedule set by the Word is that we get to see the sense of the Lord's humor in the schedule. And God, with his wonderful sense of humor, has given us this account for Mother's Day. So, happy Mother's Day to you. Zipporah, seeing her husband falling seriously ill, is convinced of the need to circumcise her son to save her husband's life. And so she does so. She takes a sharp stone and she circumcised her son. And then she did the strangest thing. Now, it's going to sound weird, but stick with me here. Zipporah took her son's foreskin, still covered in blood, And she held it to Moses' feet. And she said something along the lines of, you're a husband of blood to me now. And with that action, we see the Lord relent from killing Moses. And he allows him to live and serve as his messenger. Now, if you're hearing what I just said and thinking, what on earth just happened like I was all week, then that's okay. You're not alone with that. Let's try to unpack it. It was by God's mercy that disobedient Moses was not struck dead when his feet touched God's holy ground. And it was by God's grace that the blood that covered those very same feet saved his life. The blood of that circumcision was a sign of Moses and Zipporah's repentance and confession of sin. Moses' disobedience 
was disqualifying. And yet the power of God kept him alive and allowed him to serve. By mercy, he did not get the death that he deserved. And by grace, he regained life through the blood that was shed for him. Brothers and sisters, God has given us far more mercy and far more grace than we could ever number or calculate. That any one of us is sitting where we are right now is a gift of mercy. It's a mercy that God has opened our eyes and given us breath in our lungs every morning until this day. God would have been just to end each of us the very moment that sin overtook our hearts. But instead, he has been merciful in a multitude of ways to spare us of the wrath that we deserve. As the blood that covered Moses' blaspheming feet purchased grace to spare his life, so too has the blood of Jesus purchased God's grace for us. In Moses' disqualifying disobedience, the mercy and grace of God is powerfully on display. Moses likely lay on that deathbed, crying out as Paul did, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Crying out to God for deliverance, and deliverance came by blood. And we, like Paul, have been delivered by the blood of one who is much greater, much higher, much more gracious than we could ever possibly fathom. In the gospel, Christ has accomplished the greatest power move ever seen. He has redeemed his church to himself. And so we, here at Winnetka Bible Church, bow with the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 4. We worship our powerful God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you pray with me? There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, Thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. This is our refuge, dear Christ, that your blood will never lose its power. That in your power, we the powerless, we the deficient, we the disobedient, lose all of our guilty stains. Be saved to sin no more as we wear your righteousness. To you be the glory, Lord Christ. Amen.